our pancakes coming up after this, so whatever we do here, if it's terrible, pancakes will make up for it, you're gonna be fine. Um, we are doing a, a new series, or we're in the middle of a new series, um, called Conversations. Uh, and basically what we've done with this is we're trying to not redefine prayer, but define prayer. Um, it's kind of this weird thing we do in church, and if you come to church for the first time, we're like, okay, let's pray, and everyone bows their head. And no one really explains what it is. No one really talks about it. We just bow our heads, we talk, and then we move on uh, with life. But I think there's a whole bunch of def definition that needs to happen around the idea of prayer. Um, it's not this crazy thing that we do. Uh, it's not a difficult thing that we do. It's not a fancy thing that we do. Uh, it's simply a conversation. And we've been saying this every single week, but prayer is a conversation with God in which the only thing that you need to do is be present. The only thing that you have to do is be present. So prayer can be a myriad of different things, not just talking. And so often I think we just think prayer is we show up, we talk, 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 and then we say, okay, God, see you later, bye, right? And if you were to have a conversation like that in any other context, it would be cuckoo, right? To come up and just speak and not listen. So we've been, over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to define what that means. We've been trying to go uh, with prayer as an idea of listening, with prayer as uh, conversation, with prayer as being just absolutely present and here and the now. Uh, and we're doing that in a special way. We're, we're doing a three-service model, um, which doesn't mean just church service. It means we're doing this. This is our first service, our kind of regular church gathering. Uh, and then our second service, which is just as important as the first service, is what we do out there, uh, where we fellowship around the table and we share a meal together every single Sunday. Uh, and that came up like a weird harebrained scheme of mine, but uh, I was like, how can we feed a bunch of people really effectively because we are a Poe church? <laughs> uh, and I was like, what can we do? And then I thought, and I was like, pancakes are cheap, let's do pancakes. So we've been having pancakes for like the next eight weeks, and, uh, and we're probably sick of pancakes at this point. But Easter uh, will be the last week we're going to do that, um, but we're going to do more than just pancakes. It's going to be a really uh, fun, special time. Um, this morning, I want to talk about uh, what it feels like to have a prayer unanswered, uh, or even more specifically, what it feels like when you feel like there's no one on the other side uh, of what you're praying. Um, it, it's something, I think there's no more uh, definitive a topic in which people lose their faith over. Uh, a prayer that goes unanswered or a prayer that gets answered in the way that we didn't want it to. Uh, and all too often we take that way too personally and we internalize that uh, and we somehow make it about us and about how there's a wrathful God up there and we're not getting what we want and so we walk away. Uh, but I think that God answers prayers in so many different ways. I think God is at work all around us constantly and anything can be an answer to prayer. Um, so this morning, we're gonna uh, talk about what that means. But first, I'd love us to just pray uh, and center into what we're doing this morning. So let's pray together. Lord God, uh, I just thank you so much um, for this time that we have together. I pray that you would um, truly just bring us into this moment, as when we said this morning, that we, would, uh, that we would show up, that we would be here, we would be present, we would recognize you at work. Um, yeah, God, don't let me mess this up. Amen. All right. Um, I am a horrible texter, uh, and if you've had any sort of interaction with me on a phone, you already know this. Most of you are going like, yes, I know he's a terrible texter. Um, my wife is even like victim of this. I will get text messages. Anybody else who gets a text message? I was with a group of guys uh, this week watching some college basketball, and we were all kind of on our phones. And whenever there'd be a buzz, there'd be like an excitement, like they'd pick up their phone and go like, ooh, I got a text message. That's not what I do. Whenever my phone buzzes, it's a problem. Like I don't like 
communication at all. So if it's a text message, I go, oh no, now that's something I've got to deal with. Like if someone texts me, it's now an errand that I have to run and I don't appreciate that. Even worse is a phone call. A phone call scares the living bejesus out of me. If my phone goes and there's a phone, it, it's, it's the funniest thing. Like, we're so far advanced in all of our communication, and yet when you get a phone call on your iPhone or on your smartphone, everything goes blank. Whatever you were doing is now put on hold, and you are now beholden to that phone call. Uh, and psychological, like, psych psychologically, we've actually studied this, uh, and it's true, and this is wild, and I said this a couple weeks ago, um, but a phone call, even if you don't pick it up, if you're ingrained in something in your job, in something creative, in something artistic, and you really have that flow going, if a phone call comes into the stratosphere, it takes 25 minutes to reset and to get back into that flow, and the average person gets a text message or a call every 11 minutes. So if we're tracking, that means we are constantly being thrown off our game by communication. Um, and I've, I've actually gotten into rhythm. I'm trying to get better at this. Please give me mercy. If you are texting me and you're not hearing back, just know everyone's not hearing back. It's not just you. I'm, I'm not ghosting you. Um, but I'm trying to get better at this. And what I've tried to do is set up a rhythm in my life where I respond to things three times a day. I respond to things in the morning. I respond to things like the lunch hour. And I respond to things at the evening. And then most of the day, I try and keep my phone on do not disturb so that I can get into that flow. But if you think about that in terms of how our prayer life works, we are constantly getting distracted, and I think this is the key, we're listening in the wrong direction. Like those distractions will come, those calls will come, those people will come, those interruptions will come, those accidents will come, and those all pull our attention. And the problem is we trust those a whole lot more than we trust our true path. Or even to put it in a spiritual way, we trust those distractions and those criticisms and those hurts way more than we trust the love of God, right? For some reason, fear and anxiety and worry are so much easier to place our trust and our faith in than just love, than just the love of God. And so what I think we need to do is get into sort of a rhythm with prayer in which we tune everything but God and what we're going to see is when we pray, right, a lot of times we'll pray and we'll send a message out there and we think that we're sending it into some other realm. But that's never what Jesus is talking about when he talks about prayer. In fact, when he talks about prayer and when he prays, there's an expectation that you're not just sending something out of the room, but you're sending something right inside. That God is already here, but we've put him somewhere else. The whole Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. The whole idea of prayer is not that we're sending a message into space, but rather that we're sending it into this space right here, right now. And that gets tricky because then answers to prayer look a whole lot different. I think it's hilarious when people say, you know, it, it was just such an answer to prayer. We only say that about things that are good. <laughs> think about that. Like, oh, I got into this college. Ah, oh, it's such an answer to prayer. We never say, oh, I, I, I got in a car crash. What an answer to prayer, <laughs> right? Or like, I, I, oh, I didn't get that promotion. What an answer to prayer. But the truth is, not getting that promotion may be just as valid of an answer to prayer as getting that promotion. It's good and bad things. Response, responses can be either or. They don't have to be just the good. But we focus on God's voice only blesses and God's voice only does the good in our lives and not the difficult. But the truth is God calls us into a lot of different difficult 
conversations and things, and we have to engage with that, and those are answers to prayer just as much as the good stuff is. The problem is we need to tune our ears and our senses to kind of listen in the right direction. Uh, the Psalms are crazy like this. David is one of the most up and down human beings. He's the writer of most of the Psalms. Um, but his emotions fluctuate wildly, and so does his faith. Let's just take this Psalm right here. Um, it's our first scripture this morning. This is Psalm 13, and this is how it begins. Pretty bleak. How long will you forget me, Lord? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I be left to my own wits, agony feeling my heart daily? How long will my enemy keep defeating me? And then we go from this at the beginning of the psalm to this at the end. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Yes, I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. Do we see where we started and then where we ended? Both are in there. And I think the, the scripture, the, that text is left in there intentionally to show us that there is a wide range of emotion when it comes to prayer, and that's okay. A lot of the Psalms, if you read through them, get even more dark than that. They're called laments. And basically, it's a cry of sadness, of hurt, of anguish, of pain. And we're not doing that enough in calling that prayer. If we look even at our worship songs, if you take a top 10 list of worship songs, almost none of them have anything to do with a difficult situation. And yet I can guarantee that almost all of us walk in here with something going on in our week that could, that's totally painful and difficult and hard to deal with. And I don't think we're leaving enough space in our religious environments to actually name that pain and deal with that pain and walk in that difficult stuff. But prayer, prayer really leaves space for that. You can lament, you can cry, you can be joyful. All the breadth of human emotion is welcome in the prayer experience. Every single part of it is useful. And we have to be careful because everything can kind of grab our attention out of that. And when we're praying and in prayer and we're only focusing on the good, we can get so distracted because there's something in the back of our heads that's not going so great that keeps rearing its ugly head. But we need to welcome that in and name it and roll with it. Um, human nature is to respond deeply to your environment. Every human, th this is the reason that we're alive, we are responders. So anything that happens, we're, we're taking it in, a million different synapses are happening in our brains, and we make decisions based on that. Right? We know this uh, because every single situation that we're in is a potential threat to us. Right? We, this is how our ancestors knew, like, oh, that's a tiger, that's not good, let's run away. But the problem is that same instinct of, the, oh, that's the tiger, that's not good, let's run away, that kicks in even if we're stressed about Monday. I think that the, this is the funniest thing. A simple phrase, a simple phrase, one line, the power of one line to move our emotion and move our anxiety is amazing. Let's try this one out. Did you finish all that laundry? Right? If you didn't get stressed right now, what's wrong with you? Maybe you did your line. <laughs> or even better, Monday is coming, right? Just that simple line. Now we're like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? But see, that line can move us in such a heavy way. Why can't you are so loved and welcomed in this place? Why can't that move us in the same sort of capacity? I think that we're giving way too much of our skills and our sensory, like, our sensory stuff to just pain. And we're using all of that skill and all of that stuff towards our anxiety and towards our worry. If you're really good at worrying and you're really good at anxiety, you're really good at giving up control to something. The question is, what are you giving up control to? 
we can use those same skills that we do in worry and anxiety and fear and all that kind of stuff, and we can point them towards love. It's listening. It's listening in the right direction rather than the wrong one. We can use those same skills that we pour all of that time and worry and frustration. We can use that towards good stuff. We just have to point it in the right direction. I think the, the things in the Bible and in Scripture specifically that are there to guide us in the right direction always come in the form of something that we call angels, right? And angels show up in the Bible all the time, all the time. Uh, and yet in our lives, we don't really leave space for those presents to really come into our lives because we believe that they need to be like shiny and have wings and, and be all heavenly and everything like that. But the truth is, whenever an angel shows up, it's a messenger, right? And in the ancient context of the Bible, the whole world, that they, their worldview was all miraculous, right? Everything's a miracle. If it rains, that's a miracle. If it rains too much, that's still God and he's angry. It, like everything has to do with the heavenly realm and God. And so when they're looking around with an angel to show up in their lives, that actually wasn't that much of a stretch, right? It was incredible and it was big and they would come and they would always be scared and the angel, every single messenger, every single angel in the scripture always begins his line with this line. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So these messengers that show up to point people in the right direction, every single time they show up, they begin with do not be afraid. And to me, that looks like what they're doing is they're pointing all of that fear and all of that anxiety, and they're saying, hey, you can use this in a different way. This message of God, fear has no place here. I've said this a couple times, but someone added up all of the times that the words do not be afraid or do not fear or any kind of sentiment um, like that, they added them all up and they found, uh, I thought it was 365 times, which is amazing, right? One for every single day. It's actually, and I learned this like two weeks ago, it's actually 366 times. So it's do not fear for every single day of the year and then some. Do not fear, don't be afraid. The whole message of Christ is a, is a message outside of anxiety, of worry, of pain, and of fear. And listening to God, you have to take that fear out of it. When these messengers show up, these angels, to point people in the right direction, they always begin there to say, like, fear has no place. Now, we're going to go. Right? And in our lives, like, to, to the ancient person living now, we always look at that and go, like, how did all those miracles happen? How did all that stuff happen way back then? That would be so weird now. You know what would be weird for them right now? A light bulb. A light bulb would be insane for this ancient culture to look at. They would go, like, what are you? You're living in a miracle, right? And we just flip on the lights every day and kind of think nothing of it. But we, too, live in a miraculous world. And I think for angels to show up, for presents that are going to point us in the right direction to show up, we have to believe that it's not that big of a stretch uh, to, to, to think that an angel could pop into our lives. And that when they do, they're going to pop in in ways that won't be that much of a stretch for us to believe in, right? I have three specific people that I believe are just sort of angelic presences in my life. And by that, I mean, like, they're the people that point me in the right direction. They're the people that whenever I'm in, like, a, a discontent or a fray or anything like that, I can think of them, I can call them. Uh, they're mentors to me, and, and one, her name's Barbara, uh, and Barbara truly is sort of like an angel. I met her when I was 21, and I, I moved here um, from Northern California, 
and I was uh, 21 and I was, I was broke, I was in college, and she would uh, have me just come over. She's like this sweet older lady. Her son uh, was about 10 years older than me and I became friends with him. Uh, and it just became like a second home to me. And I've had so many late conversations just with Barbara that have been so stinking formative in my life. And I can point to like a couple lines that she said in my life that have actually carried me into greater realities and moved my story along. Angels are in a sense, or anything that gets the conversation going between you and your larger story. And I think if we're gonna do the angels thing, they're the demon part of this, the demons in our lives, are anything that keep us from that conversation. Anything that keep us from the conversation with us and our greater story. Another person for me like this is my buddy Andrew. Uh, I've known Andrew since I was like um, probably 12 years old. Uh, he's a really sweet guy, but, but when I first met Andrew, I was playing in uh, bands in high school, uh, and Andrew had a band, and I was a freshman um, in high school, and he was a senior, uh, and his band was like the cool band in town, and I idolized this man. Like, I, when his band, I would go to every one of their shows, uh, and at the <laughs> towards like the end of all this, he kind of goes like, why do you keep coming to these? Like, he would pick me out, I would go alone. It was really weird, I was kind of too obsessed with him. Anyway, <laughs> uh, after that, I started playing a band of my own, and he really took us under his wing, uh, and I just thought he was the coolest person in the world. We opened for them uh, for our very first show, and for me, that was like literally like opening for the Beatles. That's how much I was obsessed with this human being. Uh, and over time, that obsession just grew into friendship, and it, even more than that, now we're just like the best of friends. He lives in Nashville now, but we go and visit him uh, probably too much, and it's just a great relationship. But again, I have so many conversations with him and times with him that I can point to and lines that he's thrown out to me that have changed the trajectory of my life. One in particular, we were in my first uh, one-bedroom apartment over here in Santa Monica, and we were on the balcony, uh, and I was just in a really stressful kind of time in my life. I was playing music, and music wasn't really picking up for me like it was, and I, I wasn't really doing that well in life, and I was kind of directionless. Um, and I kept talking to Andrew about music, and he knew I just enrolled in seminary, um, and he's like, Josh, why do you keep talking about music so much? And I was like, well, I, I don't know, like that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm a musician, and he's like, think you're a musician. <laughs> and hearing that from my hero was both soul-crushing and beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I gotta hit the books harder, right? So th just th these are the people that move us around. And then the third person I have uh, is my mentor and coach named Corey, who's just coached me through in a pastoral way and in a loving way. Uh, and he's someone that I look to whenever I need advice for church stuff or anything like that. So I have three voices in my life uh, and there's pa parents and mentors and all that kind of stuff, but these are really the three guiding voices in my life. And these people are not angels, but I think that a lot of the lines and a lot of the conversations, there are bits and pieces that have been so angelic and so beautiful and so moving. They've helped me f listen in the right direction. And they've helped me pay attention to everything that's going on. There's a story uh, of someone in the Bible who absolutely listens in the wrong direction, and it's ironic because he's a prophet and he's supposed to be the one guy who's listening in the right direction. Um, but he's this wild, wild character in the scriptures, and his name is Elijah. Uh, Elijah is this insane presence in the Bible. It comes in 1 Kings, um, and this is a time of absolute turmoil. So if you're following the story, uh, there's this big grand king named David who wrote those Psalms and is kind of up and down emotionally. And then he has a son, his name is Solomon. And Solomon is like, if you read 1 Kings, it's like Lord of the Rings. Like there's all sorts of super mystical and, and miraculous things going on and superpowers. And so Solomon has like this unfathomable wisdom. 
He's known to be the wisest man in all the scripture, which is totally ironic because when he dies, uh, everything goes into civil war and it's mostly his fault. So anyway, you could be the wisest person in the world and still screw everything up. Um, good news from the Bible. So Solomon is, uh, is the king at this point, and Elijah uh, is this prophetic voice in the midst of all of this craziness, and he kind of pops out of nowhere. Um, but he pops out of nowhere, and he rolls into this, this story, and he begins trying to point people to listen in the right direction, to pull them out of anxiety and worry and craziness and war and, and idols and all this idol worship and stuff, and he tries to point them back in the right direction. Basically, his whole message is, you're listening to the wrong gods. And I want to point you back. But even Elijah, just like Solomon being wise and screwing everything up, even Elijah has a moment of extreme vulnerability and weakness. So Elijah has just had this epic battle uh, with another god named Baal, with prophets from the other god, in which he kills 850 of them. If we want to get into that, we'll go to coffee. Don't have time for it here. But he kills 850 people, has this huge victory, and all of the prophets of the other god uh, have now been slain. And so this should be, he's like at the, the height of his career and of his fame. But the problem is, there's uh, this lady named Jezebel who happens to be the queen and also happens to be aligned with that other god and with all of those prophets. Those were kind of her guys. And so she hears about this, and she says to Elijah, and she sends a messenger to say to Elijah that before the day is done, I'm going to do exactly what you did to them to you. So essentially, it's a death threat, and Elijah gets spooked, as we all should, and he runs into the wilderness. And he runs into the wilderness, uh, and he's tired, so he, he literally exhausted, just plops down. You have to remember, they're in like a desert, so he's fallen down, and he's just at the end of himself, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And an angel wakes up Elijah, and he says, here, you need to eat eat for the journey. And the scripture there literally says there's cake and water. So imagine you're in a desert, you're about to die, you wake up, there's an angelic presence, and there's a birthday cake and some water there. Pretty cool stuff, right? So Elijah gets up and he eats, and then he goes back to sleep, and then he continues on his journey. And basically, he's headed towards Mount Horeb, which is actually the same mountain as Mount Sinai, which if you read the scriptures, this mountain is where God speaks. Or at least that's what they think. They think that on this mountain, this is where God lives, right? And so we don't know why Elijah is headed there, and he never states why he's going there, but all of a sudden, we see Elijah going to the place where God speaks, where God speaks. And he finds a cave, as most of us should, and he goes into the cave, and he spends a night there, and all of a sudden, God's voice shows up. So that's what we're going to pick up on the scripture here. Uh, the Lord's word came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? So here's what's really, really cool about that. The Lord's word, if you look at this in the Hebrew scriptures, is the Lord's Torah, right? Torah or word. So that means the, the word of God. And in John, we see that the word becomes flesh. So right here, we have the Christ speaking into Elijah's life, the word of God. Christ is on the scene way before the person of Jesus shows up and embodies that. Um, where, why are you here, Elijah? So again, we don't know why Elijah's here. Elijah probably doesn't even know why he's there, but he comes, and this is what he says. Elijah replied, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars, and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. He also murdered 850. We're not going to get into that. Anyway, uh, I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. So pay attention to this chunk right here because it's very, very important. He's going he's gonna to repeat this, so just hold on to those lines. Next slide, please. Thanks. Um, the Lord said, 
Go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. So we have an instance in Scripture where God is actually physically going to show up. And remember, Elijah has come from this epic battle in which fire has come down and literally engulfed 850 people and a bull on an altar that was soaked with water three times, right? So we've just seen this huge display of God's power. And to Elijah, that's what God can do. And so when he says the Lord is going to pass by, go up on the mountain, you can only imagine what's going through Elijah's mind. He might even be scared. He's like, how is God going to show up now? Because I've seen some pretty crazy stuff. And so it says, a very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke uh, broke apart the stones before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. So this huge wind comes and it literally breaks apart stone. I don't know if you've ever broken apart stone, but not an easy thing to do. It's so strong that it breaks apart stone. But God's not in that. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat, and he went out and stood at the cave's entrance. A voice came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? He said, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars, and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. And the Lord said to him, go back through the desert. So a lot of people will look at this text, and they'll say, Elijah kind of missed the point, because he's repeating exactly what he said when he got there in the first place. Right? You can look at this, and you can go like, I guess he didn't really experience anything, because his lines are exactly the same as they were in the first place. But the truth is, and this is really important, it's just a perspective flip. What Elijah does here is it's the same line, but now he's experienced this presence of God and he realizes that God is with him. And so he says the same line, but now this line goes from fear and anxiety and worry and running for your life and it flips into hope and perseverance. And if you read that in a way that's like, I'm the only one left. And then God says something so radical, and I think God says this in our lives all too often. He says, go through the desert, which essentially could be said, just go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Now that you have this, you can flip all of that fear, all of that passion you were putting into all of your fear and your running and your anxiety. You can judo flip it, and now you can use that to preach my word, to bring hope and restoration to this kingdom again. Go back the way you came. I think so often when we have like a big religious experience or even if we have a big, huge epiphany, we think and expect that we're going to move to a new place or a new season or something like that. And all too often, the call is not to go to something grand and brand new and abandon what was there before, but rather it's to go back the way you came. Go back with this new perspective. Use all of those powers that you were putting towards the fear and use it in your life now because you know that I'm with you, that I'm here, that I've shown up. Go back the the way you came. See, Jesus is really good at this whole judo flip thing too. He, He sees the fervor that people have for anxiety and he goes, you're using it all wrong. 
Peter comes up to him, uh, and Peter is one of my favorite uh, of the apostles because he's just kind of the guy that just constantly jumps in. Um, he's just always there on the scene first, and he's passionate, and he's all fired up. Uh, and he has an interesting question for the rabbi. So you have to remember this is a disciple-rabbi relationship. So to when Peter is coming up to Jesus, he's genuinely asking questions that he wants to learn and take with him because the goal of a disciple was always to outpace the master. So you would learn and you would learn and you would learn and you would actually study just even the way that the rabbi would walk. Like they would actually have to mimic that. They would watch the way that the rabbi would hold his spoon or fork and they would have to mimic that. It was down to every line. So Peter comes with a genuine question. And he comes like this. He says, uh, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, or I tell you, but 77. Now, a lot of translations will, will say seven times seven, and that could be that way, but it could also be 70, 77 or 77 fold. And that's really, really important. And we do it a misjustice when we just say multiply it. I think it's just because it gets up to a bigger number and we're like, okay, yeah, that's an exact number of how many times you should forgive someone. But the truth is, this line is loaded. What this is, it's called a remez. Can everyone say remez for me? Remez. Cool, you're all Hebrew students now. All right, remez uh, is this amazing uh, rabbinic principle. And they would use this and they would pepper it in all over the scripture. And the problem is, we're so disconnected from that culture and from that text that we have to do all the studying to just figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, because there isn't a literal number of times that we're actually supposed to forgive someone. There's a much larger sentiment going on. Whenever you see a number in scripture, you should look at it closely, right? What Peter's doing, and, and he's clever in this, is he's saying seven times. How many times should I forgive someone? Seven. And the reason he says seven, seven's my favorite number, and I've gone on a lot of seven rants here, so I'm gonna save you from that. But basically, seven is a number of biblical completeness. It means that there's a plan. It means that it's all the way finished. There are seven days in creation. On the seventh day, God is complete and he rests. There are actually seven Hebrew words that begin the whole book of Genesis. Right? Seven is always, you're going to look at that and you're going to see completion in some kind of way. So Peter is saying, how many times should I forgive someone until it is complete? Like he's going the extra mile here. He's being a good disciple, a good student, and he's coming, he's being a teacher's pet, and he's saying, seven times? And Jesus says, not seven, 77 times. And Peter, in his ancient world, and in all that he had learned, would have gone, whoa. Because the only other time that 77 shows up, or 77-fold, is a story about a very scary man who just has a couple lines uh, in scripture, and his name is Lamech. And Lamech is a very scary dude, and everyone knew who Lamech was. Uh, Lamech was a scary creature in the Bible, and he's known for this song. It's called the Song of Lamech, and it goes like this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. I give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Basically what he's saying is, if someone even comes up to me and taps me, they're gonna get themselves killed. The thing he's bringing up about Cain here is Cain was the first murderer in the Bible and he kills his own brother. And once he does, Cain is marked, but God says if anyone tries to wound you, they will be avenged sevenfold. And so Lamech is double downing even on the wrath of God and he's saying, if someone tries to come at me, they're gonna get theirs 77fold they're gonna get way more than they deserve. 
And so you see this passion for vengeance and for fear and for hurt and viciousness? Jesus takes it and he judo flips it. And when he says to Peter, no, you forgive 77-fold. What he's doing is he's saying you should have the same amount of passion that Lamech had to kill people as you do for forgiveness. It's radical forgiveness. It has nothing to do with the number and it has everything to do with that judo flip of passion and using all of that like, ugh, in the right direction. It's pointing it in the right direction. I was having a bit of a, a crazy week um, this week, just in terms of I'm, I'm uh, currently like I'm doing a spiritual formation class to be a spiritual director, uh, balancing that. I've also just started writing a book, and then there's church stuff. And so there's like all of this stuff going on, and I, I literally was walking my dog on Monday morning. I don't know if you do that. Like for me, uh, I've learned that I experience sort of the, the entire breadth of human emotion in one day, and that's probably just because I'm an emotional person. But mornings are always the time where anxiety rears its ugly head for me. And so I'll wake up and I just feel like it's a daily battle to get that monkey off of my back so I can start my day. And so usually I try and do that with prayer in the morning uh, and then I'll, I'll walk the dog, we'll take a long walk. And by then, all of that anxiety, the things that I said wrong at the party, whatever it might be, I can kind of push aside and I can get what I need to get done for the day. But for some reason, on Monday, I just couldn't shake it. I just felt like there's no way I'm going to be able to complete all this stuff. There's no way I'm going to do a good job at all of this. Like, I'm just feeling directionless. And I remember just telling God, like, I feel so lost right now and so at sea. I just don't have any direction. Where are you? So I kept on worrying and I kept on, uh, I kept on just like, in absolute fear and agony. And I was just walking, just like, you know, just walking, but basically not present at all. Just my head was somewhere else completely. And then my phone uh, just began to buzz. Uh, this was the first text message I got. Uh, and that's from Corey. Um, and it says, let's get a coaching slash phone session scheduled, right? And, and that should have been a word from God, right? I'm feeling directionless, and all of a sudden, my coach and mentor has texted me to give me direction. But what do I do? I put that phone right back in my pocket and kept walking, kept fearing, kept on hurting. And then another text message came through, and it was this one. This is Barbara, the person that gives me direction in my life and actually moves me forward. And it says, want to reconnect, sweet one, question mark. And I went... No, back in the phone, kept walking, kept fearing, kept going, and then I'm not kidding, this happened. That's Andrew, miss you buddy, thinking of you today, and I looked at all of these, and then a light bulb went off in my head, and it went, oh, this is God talking to me. But here's the amazing part, because my texting skills are not that great. I went home and I wrote a sermon about this, but it took me till the next day to text all these people back. We can see that. It says today, yesterday. <laughs> so this is a miracle, and I still only texted them back the next day. So don't feel bad, people, if you're not getting text messages from me. But basically, <laughs> that was God shouting at me, right? The three angelic voices in my life that move me forward, that give me direction, that point me in the right place were all reaching out. And the problem was I was listening in the other direction. I was listening in the wrong direction. I was listening and trusting the fear and the anxiety and the hurt more than I was seeing that God was all around me just trying to get my attention. And I wonder how often we walk through life and walk right past what God is trying to do for us. One of the most incredible uh, stories in the scripture is, is that of Moses when he encounters the burning bush. 
Um, the ancient rabbis used to have a midrash on this where they would talk about it and they would say, I wonder how many times Moses passed by the bush before he actually stopped to see. Because the whole miracle there is not that there's this bush and that it's not burning up. The miracle is that Moses actually paused and stopped to pay attention to what God was doing. And that's the kind of Christians that we need to be constantly out in the world willing to stop and to pay attention. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful um, for your intentionality uh, in our lives and for the way that you answer us, which doesn't always look like an audible response or the answer that we even want, but Lord, um, you're with us. And so I pray uh, over us this week as we re-engage with the world around us as we go through, may we be people uh, that will stop and pay attention, that will see you at work uh, in places that we wouldn't expect you to be, and that we would embrace that. Amen. So if you all could stand with me, what we're going to do...